everybody. This is Lou Rosenfeld, and welcome to another installation of the Rosenfeld Review podcast series. I'm with Dan Ward today. Hey, Dan, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Lou. Uh, where are we talking to you from? I'm just outside of Boston. Excellent. I just probably drove past your house on the way back from Maine a few days ago. <laughs> Sounds nice. Yeah, so uh, Dan, um, I'll let you introduce yourself a bit, uh, but... Um, really interested in your work. Uh, you've done a couple of recent books for Harper Business. Uh, one is The Simplicity Cycle, which I've had a chance to, to read through. It came out just last year in 2015. And the other is FIRE, F-I-R-E, How Fast, Inexpensive, Restrained, and Elegant Methods Ignite Innovation. And, um, uh, I, kn- and I know that uh, you've done a lot of work uh, primarily for the military and the U.S. Air Force for about 20 years, uh, um, I think you're decommissioned now and uh, uh, doing consulting on your own and uh, actually teaching workshops through Rosenfeld Media uh, as part of that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, how your path uh, in the military took you to, um, to simplicity and, and to fire? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so, um, as you mentioned, I spent 20 years uh, in uniform as an Air Force uh, acquisition officer and, and a military technologist. And so my job was to help shepherd the development of new technology systems, whether it was everything from uh, laser research projects to uh, big global communication networks for passing secure messages from place to place uh, to airborne radar systems. And throughout this uh, these 20 years of, of leading and, and guiding these projects from really from concept to fielding, uh, boy, we ran into a lot of complexity, um, as you might imagine, both technical complexity and organizational complexity, procedural complexity, you know, doing things for the, uh, the U.S. military. Um, you often have to deal with a fair amount of bureaucracy, um, as you might imagine. And uh, at some point in my career, I began kind of looking at um, – the, the costs associated and the, the frequent overruns for a lot of these, you know, defense technology projects. I looked at the amount of time we spent building new advanced systems, and I looked at the complexity involved in them. And really, my question was, uh, does it have to cost so much, take so long, and be so complicated? And the conclusion was no, that uh, military technology in particular, but, you know, commercial technology as well, doesn't need to cost so much, take so long, and be so complicated. I discovered through my own experience of, of my own projects that I worked on, as well as my academic research, that uh, we get better results, more more impactful, more important, more innovative results when we have a small team with a short schedule and a tight budget uh, and a deep commitment to simplicity. That, that, that formula, that approach seems to lead to uh, best-in-class, world-class, oftentimes first-in-class uh, new technologies. And and that eventually led to uh, the book, uh, the FIRE book about rapid innovation, kind of trying to document some of the tools and techniques and um, principles of how do we deliver, you know, great new technologies without spending decades and billions. Uh, and then the, the second book, The Simplicity Cycle, which is a deep dive look at how complexity affects our designs, how complexity affects our, our projects, our programs, our decision making, and ultimately, how do we make good decisions about complexity? So in the simplicity in the uh, simplicity cycle, you actually um, talk a bit about brownies. Ah, uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, MRE brownies. Uh, uh, remind me, MRE is uh, uh, meals milk, ready to eat. Ready to yeah, eat. that's right. 
that's the combat rations they give us uh, when we go over to difficult parts of the world. So they're about as tasty as you might imagine they are. <laughs> but nonetheless, they take something like a 26-page recipe to prepare, if I remember. That's right. That's right. And to, to tell the story of the military brownie, I, I need to set the stage a little bit by going back to the 1970s when the uh, U.S. Air Force built two fighter jets. Um, one was the F-15 Eagle and the second was the F-16 Falcon. Uh, both are fine aircraft and, and have a, a long, proud tradition and, and history of excellent performance in the field. Um, but the statement of work for the F-16 Falcon, the, the document that basically says this is what the Air Force needs this plane to do. What are the, the specs, the requirements? Um, this is the document that the Air Force gives to contractors to say, go build me one of these. So this statement of work document was 25 pages long for the F-15. I'm sorry, for the F-16. Uh, for the F-15, the Eagle the, is a much larger airplane. It's about uh, twice as big as the F-16. But the statement of work for that aircraft was 250 pages long, so an order of magnitude larger. Um, again, both aircraft are fine aircraft, but the F-16 was developed in half the time and for half the cost of the F-15. And you, you can see the roots of that. Why did they get such a thrifty, efficient uh, result? The roots go all the way back to the requirements documents. So fast forward to the 1990s or early 2000s when it was announced that the recipe for the brownie, just the brownie, that goes into these meals ready to eat, these, these combat rations, the recipe for that brownie was 26 pages, one page more than the recipe for an F-16 Falcon. Um, something's wrong. And, and when you eat those brownies, uh, well, you can taste every page <laughs> of that recipe. Well, what's going on? I mean, uh, have people become blinded by fear of screwing up and missing something? And so they figure they have to cover every possible detail in the statements of work. Is there some other issues, some organizational dysfunction that, that uh, forces people who are probably otherwise well-intentioned into that type of thinking? Or is it something else? Uh, you know, I think it's a very human, very understandable, very rational even perspective that says um, complexity is a sign of sophistication, that we want to be rigorous and thorough and we don't want to skip any steps. So, uh, boy, we're going to reduce our risk by writing down um, all the details. We're going to be very specific and precise. Uh, the problem with that approach is that it, it doesn't hold up to the data. <laughs> when you look at, at um, the difference between, for example, the F-15 and the F-16, uh, it is possible to write these specs for a, an advanced fighter jet in 25 pages. Um, given that that's been done once and it could be done again, I don't see why we ever write 26 pages about anything. Uh, but I understand why someone would write a 250-page document, uh, for, like for the F-15, for example. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. Part of it is it's easier to write the 250-page version than it is to write the 25-page version. Uh, you really have to know your stuff to write these simple streamlined, um, you know, the elegant version, the 25-page version. You also have to make hard decisions about what goes in and what goes out. Uh, with the 250-page version, uh, you can be kind of sloppy. You can just include everything. You don't have to make those hard decisions. You can sort of push those hard decisions off on, on someone else. Um, so it is, uh, it's more difficult to write uh, the 25-page version. It's much easier to read the 25-page version and to make sure it's correct to debug it, to edit it, and to understand it. Uh, so the, the effort is worth it. Well, uh, you're, but oftentimes you're, we don't you're, you're talking to a publisher, and I always tell yeah. everyone it's uh, a good short book is a hell of a lot more valuable than a good long book, but uh, much harder to write. And I guess we both subscribe to the uh, the Mark Twain school of uh, defense uh, 
statements <laughs> of work. But what happened in that time between the F-16 and the F-15? Why did uh, it suddenly seem better, even though um, it was perceived to maybe be harder to write the shorter statement of work? Why would people... I mean, was it just like, well, it's it's easier, so I'll take the, the, the easy way and write the 250-page statement? Or was there a cultural issue? I, I, and, and one of the axes I like to grind uh, all the time is uh, I, I like to take shots at priesthoods. Did a priesthood emerge in, in the military um, that mm, sort of needed to um, use jargon and, and long-winded writing in order to make themselves sound smart and important? Or is I it... Think- uh, something with maybe the way the defense industry is constructed. And, and uh, I imagine, by the way, um, you're not exactly uh, going to find a, a big fan base among the contractors. <laughs> well, I think you nailed it. I think a priesthood certainly emerges. Uh, and really, we could say two priesthoods emerged. And the F-15 and the F-16 were developed at, at about the same time. Uh, although, like I said, the F-16 was developed in half the time, half the cost. Uh, but they were in the same era. Uh, and I think you find one uh, priesthood where we, you know, really value uh, complexity and rigor, and there, there, it's a cultural thing. Like, like you mentioned, and the culture says complexity is a sign of sophistication. Budgets are a sign of prestige. So, the more money you're spending and the longer time you're spending on something, uh, boy, you must be really smart and and really important because you have such a big budget. Uh, in contrast, you had this whatever the inverse of a priesthood is, this little monkhood maybe <coughs> of the, uh, the reformers who were running around uh, sort of in between the cracks and below the radar developing this very simple, very lightweight fighter jet. Um, and they valued speed, thrift, and simplicity. They said it is important and good for us to do this quickly, to keep the cost down, to make it physically small, to be simple in our system architecture as well as our organization, as well as our communication products. Uh, and it's two different cultures. It's two different value sets. And I think in in an organization as large as you know the Defense Department, or the even larger the you know, defense contracting community, you'll find both of those cultures present. Uh, certainly, the big, expensive, complicated culture is the dominant one. Uh, but for as long as there's been a military, there's always been this sort of subculture that says, "Hey, we value speed, thrift, and simplicity. We want to make sure we deliver things that are available when needed." Uh, affordable systems that are available when needed and effective when used. Uh, and those are the, the teams and the groups and the, the small uh, units that tend to have the biggest impact uh, on overall operations. Well, that's arguably why, well, maybe not arguably why, but perhaps a reason why we have uh, drones that are military drones that are, you know, the the size they are and, and not, you know, 20 feet long and, and five feet wide and you know, we, we're, we're not we're not developing drones like aircraft carriers. We're, agreed, agreed, and and it's fascinating to watch the development of drones sort of in real time as it's happening, and you see them begin as very small, inexpensive sort of prototypes or or permanent beta type systems, uh, and and having a huge impact, and then they gradually get bigger and more complicated, and we try and put more sensors onto any given airframe, and they get more and more missions. And, and they begin to creep back more towards that F-15 model. Uh, but something you mentioned earlier about um, you know, the, the defense industry, uh, I think there are, are many, many people in the defense industry who uh, very much would rather do the small, inexpensive, simple type project, uh, do a large number of small projects rather than a small number of big projects. Uh, so they, just, they would rather not put all their eggs in one basket 
oftentimes uh, it's not up to them though. It's so interesting to me because there's just so many analogies in so many creative areas that uh, involve large organizations. So uh, in my prior career as an information architecture consultant, I, I remember doing some work for my alma mater, uh, the University of Michigan, which I constantly cited as a negative case study uh, in terms of horrible redesigns being performed every couple of years at great expense with little benefit and, and you know, basically efforts to do big things, boil the ocean, that resulted in, in primarily cosmetic changes. Right. Uh, and then I finally got hired by them to come in and try to stem that, uh, that cycle, to break that cycle, and came up with a very lightweight, inexpensive plan uh, that uh, got rejected by senior leadership there, basically because um, uh, the, the decision maker wanted to make a splash during uh, their uh, uh, tenure uh, in their position. And uh, that person's peers at other institutions were making big splashes. And, and that was pretty much what drove it. Uh, I remember saying, but, but, but I'll, I'll, my approach will actually succeed and, and cost the taxpayers much less money. This is a public institution. Right, and right. Uh, her, her response was, uh, I don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, I'm kind of thinking about the, the kind of people that you're encountering both or did encounter both uh, in your work within the military, but also among those contractors who are taking the, the approach of let's do many small successful things rather than giant Hail Marys that aren't going to really succeed. What kind of people are they? I mean, are, are there any, is there any kind of pattern or archetype that, that, that you can use to describe them? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of coined the term fire for fast, inexpensive, restrained, and elegant as sort of a, a shorthand way to refer to um, the set of values and decision-making um, principles that these people subscribe to. Uh, but it, it, it is fascinating to see that, you know, so many people say, well, I want to make a big splash, and they overlook the fact that we can make a big splash through small means. Uh, and when I'm talking about uh, you know NASA projects, I say you can do big science on a very tight budget. Uh, in fact, you're better off doing big science on a small budget uh, per project. You want to have a, a maybe large budget overall with a large number of small inexpensive projects. Uh, but you know putting them all those uh, dollars onto a single project or into one basket is really the riskiest possible approach. Uh, and you know I think. Um, we oftentimes do funny calculations when it comes to to risk assessments. Uh, and again, whether we're talking about military technology or, you know, going to the moon or, you know, any number of, of different uh, tech development projects, we seem to believe that, hey, if, if we really take our time and do it right, that that's going to reduce the risk of failure. If we spend a lot of money, that, that really is going to help guarantee that we get a good product at the end of it. Uh, the data just doesn't support that. You know, when you when you look at the data, uh, small projects are more likely to succeed than big ones. Simple are more likely to succeed than, than complex projects. And, you know, having a short timeline increases the odds of finishing on time, whereas having a long timeline almost guarantees you're going to go over schedule. Would it be fair to say then that the, the kinds of people who are subscribing to the the fire approach and are, are more likely to be successful within these large bureaucratic organizations are people that think in terms of risk and are, are, are going to be a bit more quantitatively focused or is that an overgeneralization? I think you'll find quantitatively focused people and, and risk-oriented people in both camps. Uh, the question is what data do they really look at? Um, what data do they find convincing? 
and how deep do they look at the data? Uh, so, for example, when NASA launched their Faster, Better, Cheaper missions in the 90s, uh, they launched 16 missions and only 10 of them succeeded. And they said, gosh, that's a 62% success rate. Uh, faster, Better, Cheaper doesn't succeed often enough, so we're going to get rid of that whole method. The method must be fundamentally flawed. Um, that is a quantitative assessment, and, and the math is correct insofar as it goes. But if we dig a little bit deeper, we notice that nine of the first 10 missions succeeded. And that means that the first, for seven years, they had a 90% success rate. Then in 1999, four out of five missions failed. So we have a clustering of failures. And uh, when we have clustered failures like that, that means not that the method is fundamentally flawed, but something changed, something weird happened. There's something different going on. Uh, the other important thing to, to note about Faster, Better, Cheaper is that the total cost for all 16 missions was less than what they spent on the Cassini mission to Saturn. Now, Cassini is a huge success. I love Cassini. But for the amount of money that we spent on Cassini, they got 16 other missions, or we could say they got 10 successful missions. Only 10 succeeded, but that means 10 successes for the price of one. Gosh, that's a pretty good deal. So if we do that math, if we do the calculations that way, based on the exact same data, we can say, well, 10 out of 16, you didn't succeed often enough. Or we can say, hey, you got 10 successes for the price of one. This is a great approach. I think you'll find both approaches are adopted. Uh, I think one approach makes a lot more sense as a more reasonable approach to dealing with the data, and that is the the 10 for the price of one. Well, and you're talking now at a, a, a very high level, I mean, even almost higher level in strategy for an organization like NASA to take. I mean, you're, you're talking about not only strategy, but strategy over the long term, uh, sure. over, you know, 16 missions over many, many years. And the kind of people that are going to be thinking about that are, are typically going to be at the highest levels of leadership within large organizations. So my question for you then is, what kind of, of success are you having with this approach with those people, or is it really too soon to say? I mean, you've obviously done it within uh, the, uh, the Air Force. Uh, now you're doing it as a, a consultant. Do you find you're getting your ideas across and, and that there's a certain open-mindedness and hopefully even open heart uh, yeah. <laughs> as well? That's a great question. Um, really, a lot of my focus has been at the practitioner level, uh, mm -hmm. dealing with my peers, the, the engineers, the program managers, the, the people who are making the day-to-day -day decisions, um, whether we're making software design or making a PowerPoint uh, presentation. That's the type of people that have generally oriented my, my efforts and my discussions and my workshops towards. Uh, but this approach it, uh, scales nicely. It's something that you can apply at the you know big strategic level. If you're like the administrator of NASA, you know you're the secretary of the Air Force. That that level of, of decision making, you can apply these exact same principles about speed, thrift, and simplicity uh, at that level. As well as if you're a junior engineer, a junior designer, you know a junior UX uh, expert. You know when I'm given the opportunity to to speak at these different levels, uh, the response is usually pretty uh, receptive. People seem to, to get it and think, oh, for the decisions I get to make, yes, I could apply these principles on, on my daily job and on the, the problems that I get to solve. But there oftentimes seems to be a bit of a disconnect between you know, the, the top level senior leaders and then the, the practitioners you know, down in the weeds or at the, the working level. And so making that connection, I think, is, is the next big challenge is to say, you know, hey, this is how we want the engineers to behave. It's also how we want the senior executives to behave. And ideally, we'd like them to do this in concert. We'd like them to do it together. Well, uh, this is going to uh, show my com almost complete ignorance of 
how the military operates in the battlefield context today. But my understanding is that there's been a real move to devolve decision making to local units on the ground rather than uh, take a centralized approach. And um, assuming I'm right, and tell me if I'm right or wrong, um, it, it, I'm wondering what's behind that. Is that a, a thinking that has come from, in effect, the military practitioner or the military strategist? Yeah, there's a, a constant tension and a constant uh, back and forth when we talk about sort of decentralized command versus uh, centralized control or decentralized control and centralized command. You know, where do the decisions get made and, and how far out can we push the decision-making authority? And, uh, you know, I think um, I think it was Drucker said, um, decisions should be made at the lowest possible level and as close to the action as possible. That's actually consistent with, uh, for example, uh, Catholic social teaching. There's a, a principle called subsidiarity. It says that decisions should be uh, made at the lowest competent level, you know, by, again, by the smallest team. So really pushing things out to, uh, to the front line for, for decision making. They're the people who tend to be the most, um, up to speed on the current state of, of events and state of affairs. Uh, now the key word there is the lowest competent level. So we have to make sure that these people are well trained, well, well guided, well instructed, and well led. Uh, and so in the, in the Air Force in particular, we talk about something called commander's intent. So rather than saying, hey, here's exactly how I want you to go do this thing, they say, okay, here's the overall objective, our overall goal. My intent is for this thing to happen, this effect to be provided. Now you go off and figure out how to do that. And again, the, the popularity of that approach sort of ebbs and flows. Uh, I think we're seeing more of that now, sort of the, the center of effort being pushed further out to the field. We're seeing more of a decentralization, which I think is a generally a positive uh, approach. Well, if I... Can dust off some very old memories. I, I think even some of the, like the military strategists from 100, 200 years ago, like Clausewitz and, and Littlehart, those guys are probably talking in these terms, maybe with different language. But uh, I think that you know that some of the same themes were were happening back in the you know aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars. So let's take if um, you know, let's avoid maybe the going too ambitious and looking at the sweep of history and, and take it back <laughs> to uh, to what people uh, inside large organizations can actually do today. Besides picking up copies of your books, of course, right. um, <laughs> which I, ho I hope they will do. I hope uh, so too. What's a, a parting uh, nugget or two of advice that you have for practitioners who are trying to deal with? moving from complicated to complex and from maybe even from complex to simple. Yeah. So if I could summarize all of this in, in basically one line, that teams which value speed, thrift, and simplicity tend to outperform teams that take the opposite approach and that embrace an attitude that says, hey, take your time and do it right and spare no expense. Uh, that's the approach that tends to underperform, underdeliver, cost more, take longer, all, all that stuff. Uh, and, and my get off the stage line, usually when I give uh, presentations and workshops, goes something along the lines of, of this. And, and I, I say to my participants and, and audiences, uh, you know, hey, I, I don't know what decisions you get to make. I don't know what problems you get to solve. But I suspect on a regular basis, you get to make a choice between a, an, an alternative or an option that costs a little more or one that costs a little less, one that might make things a bit more complicated or one that might make things a bit simpler one that takes a little longer uh, or one that can be done uh, a little faster. 
And as a general rule of thumb, I think we are better off moving in the direction of the faster, the less expensive, and the simpler alternatives. Whether we're making decisions about, you know, making a PowerPoint presentation, a system architecture for a, a Mars rover, uh, or, or some sort of, you know, big policy or, or strategy uh, plan. In all of those cases, we're generally choosing between faster and slower, more expensive, less expensive, simpler and more complicated. Uh, and again, I think we, we tend to get, the data shows, we tend to get better results if we move in the direction of speed, thrift, and simplicity. Amen, Dan. And uh, if people want to learn more, uh, those books are a really great place to start. I certainly enjoyed the simplicity cycle, and I'm looking forward to reading Fire, How Fast, Inexpensive, Restrained, and Elegant Methods Ignite Innovation. They're both with Harper Business. Both came out in the last couple of years. And uh, uh, if anyone is interested in bringing Dan to their organization, uh, send us an email, uh, info at rosenfeldmedia.com, and we'll talk. Uh, We'd love to help uh, you bring Dan to your organization to teach a workshop. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Lou. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. All right.